Thanks very much. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, I have kind of an uncomfortable position here as the moderator for this panel because I think that one of the jobs of a moderator is to properly and thoroughly introduce the panelists. But if I go through a list of the accomplishments and appointments and titles of these two gentlemen, we are going to run out of time. Um, just to give you one quick example, Eric Topol to my right is the first guy I've seen who needs two sides for a business card. <laughs> And this is not filler. This is all real stuff. So what, what I want to do is just hit a couple of the highlights for our two panelists. Then we're going to turn it over, first of all, to Nicholas uh, to give us a, a, a show and tell about some of his work, some opening remarks from Eric as well. Then I'm going to selfishly use my moderator privileges to ask a couple questions about technology and health that I'm very interested in. We're going to spend the last good chunk of time on questions and discussion with the audience. So if there's anything that you would like to talk about, please, we have a microphone right in the middle of the room. Uh, come uh, form a line, and we'll have a chance for open discussion at the end. So, as I say, the gentleman with the two-sided business card to my right is Eric Topol. Uh, he is the, a professor of genomics at the Scripps Research Institute, the director of the Scripps Translational Science Institute, the vice chairman of the West Wireless Health Initiative, dot, 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 and the, a co-author and the author of a, a wonderful book that just came out this year, this year called The Creative Destruction of Medicine, How the Digital Revolution Will Create Better Healthcare. Uh, to his right is Nicholas Christakis, who is a professor of sociology in the Department of uh, the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard, a professor of medical sociology at Harvard Medical School, and a professor of medicine also at Harvard Med School. Med School. He is the co-author with James Fowler of Connected, The Surprise power of social networks and how they shape our lives. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Nick, can we ask you to start? You want to show and tell us a couple things about some of your recent work, and Eric and I are going to get a little bit out of the way. So, um, so thank you very much. I, um, I wanted to take just 10 minutes to show you just some images from the work we've been doing, because if these images aren't familiar to you, it would have been very hard for me to sit there and kind of conjure up in your minds the kinds of things that we've been doing in my, uh, in my lab at, uh, at Harvard. So I'm going to be just very briefly talking to you a little bit about how and why we're all connected and how social networks, and here I mean not, not the online networks so much, although I'll talk a little bit about that. I mean the real face-to-face -face networks that we humans have been making for tens of thousands of years. I want to tell you a little bit about the structure of these networks and what they mean for our lives. And I've been doing this work for the last 10 years with my colleague at UCSD, a good friend, my closest friend now and colleague, James Fowler. So we're interested to reiterate in real social networks, the kind we've been making and embedding ourselves in for tens of thousands of years. But nevertheless, new big data technologies uh, related to data tracking and analysis open up whole new ways that we can understand these networks and exploit them to increase individual and collective health. So let me suggest a few ways that such technology can be deployed to achieve these desirable properties. But first, let me just highlight, and maybe we can just turn off yeah, a little bit of the lights. Um, just to highlight uh, how fundamental and how ancient social networks are. This is a paper we just published a few months ago now in Nature. Um, we uh, created a, we wanted to study the Hadza hunter-gatherers, who um, are one of the last remaining hunter-gatherer populations on the planet. They live like we did during the Pleistocene. They're pre-agricultural. They have no, uh, no material possessions to speak of, just what they can carry. They sleep under the stars. They hunt and they gather for their food. They're a natural fertility population. There are only about 1,000 of them left, only about 500 of them living in the traditional way. So in collaboration with a, a postdoc of mine and some others and James Fowler, we decided we were going to map the social networks of the Hadza. So we created a photographic census of all adult Hadza, and we printed these posters, and we took them to the field, and we drove around 4,000 square kilometers around Lake Ayasi in Tanzania, and every adult Hadza we found, we asked them to identify their friends using this sort of Hadza Facebook. Um, and we asked them to identify their friends in different kinds of ways, uh, which I won't go into now, how, how they identified the people who they cared about, who they might give gifts to, who they wanted to spend time with, and so forth. And when we finished mapping the networks of the Hadza, this is a sort of what a network map looks like. Every dot is a person. Every line between them represents a relationship between the two people. And you can create these maps, and then you can proceed to color the maps and otherwise manipulate them in ways that can be very informative. Here we've made the dot size and color proportional to how cooperative these individuals are. 
So bigger dots and more intense yellow color are very cooperative individuals. And we go through some analyses and we show that the cooperative individuals in the Hadza networks tend to cluster with each other. So they kind of form these linkages with each other. This tendency seems to be actually very ancient. And this, these findings comport with some other work that we've done that's been looking at the genetics and evolutionary biology of human social networks. The fact that our tendency to form networks and to form networks of a particular kind seems deeply rooted in our DNA. And you can fast forward now and look at this network and just cultivate the intuition by looking visually at this image. Forget about the mathematics, which is complex and can be deployed to sort of mathematically summarize and analyze these networks. Here now is an online network of Facebook friends. So every dot is a college student. Every line represents a relationship. The red lines are who's who's Facebook friend. And the other lines, which are sort of obscured by this sort of plethora of Facebook friends, the blue lines and the green lines and the white lines, represent other kinds of relationships, real face-to-face relationships, roommate relationships, membership in a club, and so forth. So the availability of online and other data about human behavior heralds the kind of onset we think of a new kind of computational social science. And the availability of data of this kind is exploding and is going to continue to do so for the foreseeable future. In fact, another way to understand what we, the kind of era we live in is that we live in a kind of era of massive passive data, where data is passively collected about us on a massive scale. And access to this kind of data will afford certain opportunities to improve health in a ways I'm going to speak about. In fact, if you had talked to social scientists about 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, and said to them, what kind of powers do you dream of having? They would say, well, it would be unbelievable if we could have this little tiny Black Hawk helicopter, and if it could fly on top of you and monitor where you are and who you're talking to and what you're thinking and what you're buying, and if it could do that in real time continuously, and if we could do that for whole cities of people and get a data feed of such kind, that would be unbelievable. And, of course, that's exactly what we have right now in the form of our cell phones. Each of us is leaving these little digital breadcrumbs as we move through our lives, willy-nilly, unobserved, unobtrusive. And these data can then be taken, processed, analyzed, understood to gain new insights into human behavior, which can form a new predicate for intervening and improving health. So there are all kinds of data like this, of phone data, email data, online networks, other kinds of administrative data. I'll give you just a quick overview um, here's a small sample of a data set from 8 million phone users in a whole European country. We can take the, who's calling who. Forget about listening in on their calls. We're not talking about that. Just tracking who's connected to whom. Every dot is a cell phone user. Every line represents a phone call relationship between these two people. And you can passively observe and then process the data in ways that give you insight into which relationships are close and which ones are distant, for example. And begin to track the flow of ideas, the flow of behaviors, the flow of product adoption across these network ties. Another kind of data we've been using that's highly health relevant is data on on claims data when patients go to see doctors. So for for decades now, whenever you guys, whenever anyone went to see a physician, the physician would file a claim, and this claim would go to some kind of central repository that said, Nicholas Christakis saw Dr. Jones on this day for this reason. And all these data just lived in these repositories and were used to pay claims and so forth. Well, we can take those data and reconfigure them to understand networks of doctors. So on the top are four doctors, one, two, three, and four. And on the bottom are the patients in yellow, A through K. And if you look at this, you can see that patient one, doctor one took care of patients A, B, C, and E. And doctor two took care of patients B, uh, D, F, and G, and so forth. So each of these doctors took care of different patients. Well, what you can do is is then you can so-called project this matrix of data to the lower panel, which shows just the four doctors, and the lines between them represent how many patients they have in common. So doctors one and two had two patients in common. Doctors two and four had one patient in common. Doctors one and three had no patients in common. And so now you can take advantage of data that already exists, not speak to a single patient or a single doctor, and map the networks of physicians for the whole nation, which is something we have done. In fact, a paper on this topic will be appearing shortly uh, later this month. We've done this for the whole country, all 600,000 doctors using 30 million patients. And you can drill down to any level. You can go down to the city level, to the hospital level, to the doctor level. And so here, just as an illustration, is about 2,000 doctors. Every dot is a doctor. Every line between them represents a relationship. They're sharing a certain number of patients. You can tune the network. They have to share at least 20 patients in common before that's a real tie and so forth. 
And we color the dots here according to which hospitals the doctors are at, but you can do other kinds of analyses which I won't go into. And now you can begin to cultivate the intuition that this kind of a map provides you an insight to begin to understand how do innovations diffuse among doctors. If one doctor adopts an innovation, how does it spread to other doctors? Or how do doctors spread nosocomial infections? If my hands have an infection because I treated this patient, do I then pass them to another patient? And all kinds of other things. How do doctors collaborate with each other? How do you form accountable care organizations? How, if you're a pharmaceutical company, do you target specific doctors to increase or decrease the use of particular agents, for example? Or you can use these data yet another way. Here now we have the 5,000 hospitals in the country. Every dot is a hospital. The lines between them represent the transfer of patients between these hospitals. So here now you can have a network of hospitals developed not based on economic measures, but rather on the movement of patients. And this kind of an image lets you get into insi insights into ideas like technology adoption, or the flow of nosocomial infections, or bioterror attacks, or patient load. If you shut down one hospital, what ripple cascade effects will it have on other hospitals to whom that hospital is connected, where patients naturally flow from place to place? So this is just a very quick uh, introduction to some of the images and ideas. Let me then quickly tell you a couple of kinds of things you can do with this type of knowledge, very superficially, and we can talk more. If you want to intervene in social networks, if you want to take advantage of these types of big data to gain new insights into how social phenomena related to health uh, work and how you can intervene in them to make them better, very broadly speaking, there are two kinds of things you can do. You can manipulate the connections between entities uh, introduce people to each other, connect hospitals or doctors to each other. So you can change the structure of the network, or you can manipulate the contagion or change the flow. So I'm going to leave you guys having your own friends, but I'm going to pick shrewdly among you who I target to give a piece of information to to maximize the flow of that information within the network. So one option is I introduce you two should know each other. A different option is, okay, I'll let you know who you know, but now I'm going to tell you a piece of information as opposed to her and see if I tell it to you, does it flow more widely than if I tell it to her? So just to give you some examples from my lab and from other labs, uh, this is some work that we just published uh, in the Proceedings of the National Academy uh, where we did some experiments. And uh, very quickly, the point of this experiment was to understand how, if we change the rules of human interaction, how can we manipulate or control the properties of groups and the behaviors of individuals? For example, properties of groups might include the productivity of the group or the innovativeness of the group or the cooperativeness of the group or the health of the group. Is it possible by manipulating and controlling who interacts with whom and what the rules of engagement are that would, we can foster and create whole new types of desirable things? On the bottom, we show a fixed network. Here, about 20 people are randomly dropped. This is an experiment done with online subjects. Are randomly dropped into a network, and they're obliged to only interact with the people who they were assigned. And the red dots show people who are so-called defectors. They are playing something known as a public goods game in economics. Uh, they are, it's a question of how much, how cooperative they are, their tendency to cooperate. And the blue dots are the cooperators. So the blue, blue guys are the cooperators, and the red guys are the deadbeats. They don't cooperate. And if you look on the far left, you see at the beginning there's some blue dots. But people are stuck interacting with only certain other individuals. And if you look what happens over time, period 1, 2, 6, and 10, as shown from left to right, by the end of the experiment, everyone has shifted to defection. There are very few cooperators left. Because if I force you to interact with other guys who are deadbeats who take advantage of you, after a while you say, to hell with that, I'm going to be a deadbeat too, and you stop cooperating. So cooperation disappears in social systems in which people are obliged to interact with certain other people and have no control over the behavior or uh, of others or who they are connected to. Conversely, in the top, we allow people in this virtual world of real people to manipulate their social ties and rewire their social networks. And in the experiment, we were able to show that in this type of a situation, cooperation persists in the social system. So whether or not we can get groups of people to cooperate depends on the rules that we impose on the group on how the network connections are made. A different experiment, which we're now doing uh, in, uh, in Honduras, Uganda, and India, we're going to villages in the developing world, we're mapping their networks, and we're asking if we have a budget constraint, we only have a certain number of people we can target, who are the most rational people we should target to get the whole village to adopt what it is that we want them to adopt? So here, if you look on the, uh, on the left, am I off mic? I don't know. But uh, if you look here on the left, here's a village, and here's a village of ties. Every dot is a person. Every line represents a relationship between the people in this village. And here's another village and their ties. And imagine you can only reach six people, as shown in the yellow dots. 
and you teach them to do something, like use bed nets for malaria, or do a maternal and child health intervention, take better care of their kids in some way, or clean their water in some way. Now you come back a year later and you ask yourself the question, not, did the six people that I gave the intervention to adopt the intervention? Instead, you ask yourself a more subtle question, which is, did the 150 people I did not give the intervention to, did they adopt here compared to the control group here? So this experiment is a spillover experiment. It tests, does the intervention diffuse by comparing the untreated people here to the untreated people here? But now that you've mapped the network, you could do something much more efficient and clever. Instead of picking those six people, either at random or based on their wealth or some other attribute, pick them to their central individuals within the network. And when we do this experiment, we're going to be able to know now, comparing the untreated people here to the untreated people here, does this kind of network targeting give you more bang for your buck? Are you more likely to be able to persuade villages to do public health things that you care about if you strategically pick central people or people with other network attributes than random people? I've got three more slides, and then I'll stop. You can also use the network maps of doctors. Here now, every dot is a doctor. Every line represents a relationship. Now we've colored the dots according to whether they're using a, a drug for an anti-diabetic drug called Genuvia. We make the dot size proportional to how much Genuvia they're prescribing, and we color the dots orange if they've used Genuvia, otherwise yellow. And if you look at this network, you can see outbreaks of Genuvia use. You can see little, little pockets of people who are doctors who are using Genuvia. And here down on this peninsula, none of the doctors are using Genuvia. If it was your objective to get them to use more Genuvia, you might shrewdly target this doctor right there to kind of open up the floodgates and increase the flow of information down to this peninsula. Or if your objective was something different, get them to stop using Genuvia, or get them to increase safety practices, or change how, what kind of tests they order, or any kind of behavior that physicians might evince, you could take advantage of this understanding of the social fabric to more shrewdly target the network and intervene in it to get groups of people to behave in ways that are uh, pro bono, that are for the public good. Here's an example of work done by Nathan Cobb, some very clever work looking at online networks. Here they take a sample of 7,000 people who signed up for an online uh, smoking cessation tool. Every dot is a, is a uh, person, every line represents a relationship. The, uh, uh, the um, uh, I forgot which color is which. Oh, the red dots are smokers and the blue dots are non-smokers. And once again, you can see clusters of smokers and non-smokers online. And using these online tools, people who want to quit are able to influence each other, form relationships with each other, and you can get the group to quit smoking. You can foster an epidemic of smoking cessation by shrewdly manipulating the nature of the interaction and what happens online. This is my last slide. To, uh, to exploit online interactions, however, we're going to need to do a few things very, uh, that are very important. First of all, we must understand that interactions must be real or feel real. You don't just respond to any old online contact that you have. The random Facebook friend of yours who says you should do something, you typically ignore. Just like a telemarketer who calls you and says you should do something, you ignore. But if a friend of yours calls you and says you should do something, it has a much bigger impact on you. So for, for, for these online world to work to improve health, the interactions must be real or feel real, and something must be at stake. So you can get strangers to affect each other online if they have a common interest, like they both want to quit smoking, or they both want to date. They're trying to, you know, using a, to find a partner, or they're transacting business with each other. If something is at stake, then strangers can influence each other. And last, we're going to have to understand in this world that leaders and followers are both needed. There's a kind of fantasy now in online marketing that, oh, if we could just find the influential people, that's all we need to do. But actually, it's not enough. You need to find the influential people and the influenceable people. You don't just need shepherds. You need sheep. And you need a kind of technique which can identify what are the clusters of shepherds and sheep, how do you find them in the network, and go reach them and give them the, the health message that you might want. Overall, new technologies for discerning human interactions and intervening in them offer the promise for improving individual and collective health, and we already have abundant evidence of the role such interventions can and do play. All right, so I just wanted to give you those visuals because it's very hard to describe what I do without any pictures. Thanks. Fantastic. And Eric, can we get you to talk a bit about the work that you're doing these days and how you see the intersection of technology and health. And if I understand you right, why you're so optimistic that things, important things are going to get better as we move ahead. Sure, Andrew. Well, it's first uh, delight to be on this panel with you and with Nicholas. Uh, we've got the authorities and 
science of social networking in the world and certainly authority in the digital revolution, how it affects business. So it's a really uh, interesting group. What I'm going to try to get to is building on what Nicholas um, introduced in the social networks and how that can influence health. The title, of course, is Technology Will it Improve Health. And yes, Andrew, I'm remarkably optimistic. The reason is that that's just one component. This is digitizing human beings, but it's more about the, the social demographic stuff. It's about customer engagement. And you've seen, like, for example, the ability to... Uh, study the networks of physicians and hospitals and what that could eventually, uh, uh, what the implications are. But it's much bigger than that. The, the digital revolution includes, uh, obviously, social networking is a part. There's patients like me. Many of you are on patients like me and these other Cure Together online health communities. And now many people actually with like conditions and virtual partners have uh, more trust in their, in their uh, online connections than they do with their physicians. Something's at stake. Yeah. So this is a big shift. Uh, Facebook already, obviously, with 900 million registrants, has now uh, not only been very supportive of organ donation, something we never would have expected, but also uh, there have been live save through posting information and pictures on Facebook, which is really interesting. It's a very rudimentary way that uh, social networking can influence health. But let's build on that. Uh, last January 2011, there was IBM Watson Supercomputer. And we were talking about that this morning. And What's really interesting is not about just beating humans in jeopardy, but rather, where is this supercomputer being deployed? And it's in the medical world. WellPoint, one of the largest insurers, has hired Watson for its most challenging cases. And then, in addition to that, the largest cancer centers in the country, like uh, Sloan Kettering, uh, have uh, also uh, liaised with Watson for being able to deal with the genomics of cancer, which is obviously uh, cancer is a genomic, genomic complex disease. Uh, so supercomputing is having a big impact in health. Then when you add on the mobile phone story, which Nicholas mentioned, so there's more, uh, 6 billion phones, uh, more mobile phones in the world than toilets or toothbrushes. So, you know, there's a lot of mobile phones out there. And there's this remarkable digital network. And it used to be used, and in fact it is the most common way that people now attach to their social networks. But it's now being used to track one's physiology, moment to moment. So with ads, like the one I have on this iPhone, you know, with a couple of sensors in the back, I can just pull up an app, and I can do And I, last year at this uh, program, I, I was like Dr. Gizmodo showing all these different sensors. It was pretty, a lot of fun. I just showed this one because it really tells the story. I put my fingers on the back of the uh, phone, and I have my cardiogram. And um, now that's really... Uh, who would have thought you could do it? I'm a cardiologist and still active. No, you're making that up. No, it's, it's a real deal. So uh, there's not just apps for getting your cardiogram, your blood pressure, your glucose, minute to minute, wherever you are. So now we're starting to harness this digital infrastructure to be able to get data that we didn't have. So this is, of course, like, for example, there's 70 million uh, uh, Americans with high blood pressure. Did we ever know what their blood pressure was when they were uh, sleeping? when they were in stress or having an argument. Now we can know that, and we could potentially prevent heart attacks and strokes. That's just one example. So when you combine this with sequencing, which is really digitizing human beings uh, at the biologic level, all six billion letters of the whole um, uh, sequence, and you can crack that for each person, uh, this course is now becoming affordable quickly. Uh, you can do a whole genome sequence this year in less than two hours for less than $1,000. That is a reset, if there ever was one, because now you have a, a chance to, not only for cancer diagnosis, the driver mutations that's driving the, uh, the condition, but for rare conditions, you can understand them, and then uh, for drug interactions uh, for each individual, uh, and, and neonates. In fact, even unborn uh, children in the first trimester, trimester, the unborn baby, first trimester of pregnancy, you can do a whole genome sequence now. So this is a phenomenal uh, opportunity. When you start pulling these, these, these things together, that's where it really blossoms. So it isn't just about the sequencing of the whole individual. It's about sequencing cells. So, for example, in the future, we'll have nanochips in our bloodstream that have our blood under constant surveillance. And we've already just recently published a study about this in heart attacks. There are cells that are sloughing off from the artery that's sick, that's going to lead to the heart attack over the next week or two. And so now, you, with a sensor, you can pick that up and have a ringtone to your cell phone, a heart attack ringtone. And that says, hey, 
you know what, you better get this checked out because if you don't get on some really good anti-clotting medicine, you're going to have a heart attack. The same thing for cancer, diabetes. Don't let that one go to voicemail. So, you know, basically the composite view is the technology is extraordinary if it's used in the right way and if it's done, you know, in rigorous validation. This is, uh, that's why, you know, I called it the creative destruction of medicine. This is the most exciting time ever uh, in the history of medicine. Uh, and it's really not going to happen. Uh, in fact, we need social networking for this to happen. But it won't happen unless we get the consumers educated and activated. Because the physician community, the medical world, is so ossified, so incapable of doing this, that we need uh, the, the harnessing the power of the people through social networking. Nicholas, Eric just made a really strong statement, which is that this is the most exciting time in the history of medicine. Do you, do you have some sympathy for that view? I do, but the problem is that, you know, you, if, you, if, you're, if there are any historians in the audience, they would probably say that similar people were saying similar things, you know, every decade for yep. the last hundred years. Um, so it's very difficult. You know, I think when, we, when biochemistry was sort of the frontier in the 1950s and then I suppose genetics in the 60s or cellular, you know, neuroanatomy and so forth, I think people would consistently think that there was some, just around the corner, we would be able to cure everything. Uh, so I don't want to be too Panglossian about it. But I do think we are at a special moment, actually. Um, I think that the, the way in which we've been able to get deep understanding of human physiology and the ways in which we are able to intervene and understand human interactions is different. And do you, do you get the sense that we're getting as good a, a set of tools to understand the human interactions as we've had to understand what goes on inside the individual human? Uh, where is the science the strongest? I, I don't know the answer to that. Like you're, it's, it's like saying, you know, I guess if I would rephrase the question I was just asked was, is, if there's 100 units of knowledge to have about human behavior and 100 units of knowledge to have about the human body, mm. where do we have more? I actually don't know the answer you know to that the question. Answer to that. Okay. I had a question uh, because can you harness... I'll handle the question. Yeah. Oh, that's well, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, I don't want to violate <laughs> protocol. But it just came to me because I had not had the opportunity to be sitting next to Nicholas to ask this. That one of the biggest problems of health, of course, is obesity, diabetes, yeah. diabe- diabetes. And one of the things that uh, has been um, touted as potentially transformative is to be able to have managed competition within social networks yes. for weight loss, for uh, you know, yes. control of diabetes. So we can gamify these things. Gamify. Yes. And so the question is, is that a potentially durable solution? Because we don't have one for the obesity, mm. diabetes epidemic. I think, I, think that, I think that there are ways in which a better understanding of the intersection. I mean, humans are at once natural and social objects. And a better understanding of that interface affords new opportunities for intervention. So for example, understanding where our sense of competitiveness comes from, more deeply understanding the role of social norms and social behaviors, understanding why and how we copy other people, which we all do, right? I mean, in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of aspects of our lives, offers new opportunities to exploit those things, things for good or for evil. Incidentally, you can get fascism, right? You can get kind of extreme political movements. You can get uh, outbreaks of germs, for example. Uh, but you can also exploit them for good. And so there are ways in which you can take advantage of our addictive tendency, our competitive feelings, to seed the network with things like weight loss, let's say, rather than weight gain. And there's some nascent science that's showing that this is, this is possible. Um, I think... Are, I, are you encouraged by the magnitude of the effects? Yes, How, the effects are very significant. And I'll give a very simple sort of cartoon example of this. One of the deep properties of social networks is, is that they magnify whatever they are seeded with. <laughs> networks will magnify whatever they are seeded with. In fact, I think that's why we evolved to have networks, that they are a kind of knowledge or phenomenon magnification tool. And I think that, um, I think that the, the key components of that idea are that, first of all, the networks are agnostic. They will magnify anything, good or evil, fascism, Ebola, uh, happiness, uh, drug use, violence, uh, joy, you name it, the network will magnify it. But second, the network is agnostic in the sense that the network must be seeded. The network does not on its own, sui generis, give rise to the phenomenon. So what's happening, I think, in our society with respect to obesity is there are other forces, like the declining price of food, the suburbanization of our society, and so forth, that are leading to the obesity epidemic. And then the network takes over and magnifies. It gives you more of it. And I can cultivate that intuition by inviting you to think about two islands in the Pacific. In one island, there are 100 people, and nobody talks to anyone else. And in the other island, there are 100 people, and everyone talks to everyone else. 
And in neither of these islands is there an epidemic of tuberculosis at the moment. And now a sailor washes up on the shore, and he washes up on the first island, and he interacts with the first person he sees and infects that person, and that's it. You get an epidemic of one. No one else gets affected. Now, in the second island, he washes up ashore, and he infects one person, and everyone gets infected. So before the sailor comes, no epidemic in either situation. After the sailor comes, you get an epidemic, but you get a big one when everyone's interacting, and not one at all when no one's interacting. So the network magnifies whatever it is seeded with. And I think there are ways we can exploit these types of phenomena for the good. That, that, that's the whole. Yeah. Eric, you tossed off the statistic about how quickly we can get a human genome sequenced and how much it costs. And we hear those things kind of all the time, and it sounds like kind of a low number. But you also helped put that in context for me when we were talking earlier. You talk about just this astonishing decline in price and, and time required to sequence. Tell sure, us, sure. Tell well, us about that. Well, you know, that. just uh, last week, June 26th was the uh, 12th anniversary of the, the, the so-called coding, uh, decoding the uh, life, uh, the, the big event at the White House. But in that time, uh, the span of uh, those 12 years, it took initially uh, $3 billion, six years, to do one genome. And it was a hodgepodge. It wasn't even one person. Now, uh, in 2012, we can sequence. Uh, it will be down to two hours by the end of this year uh, for about $900. So no one would have ever projected. You know, there's a couple of things that about the digital world that are, no one would have pre predicted. One is the power and the, the, the enormity of social networks. The other one is sequencing. Because sequencing defies Moore's law. It is so, it, it transcends it to such a degree, this idea about doubling every year, uh, every 18 months. This, that's, that's laughable. In, 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 this in take, if you look world. at the graph, uh, it just is mind-blowing. So the point here is that Are we done yet, or are we going to keep getting cheaper and faster? Well, IBM is uh, projecting that a human genome sequence, 6 billion letters, you have to do it 40 times at least for a native germline DNA, wow. uh, to down to $100. Now, we don't know if I'll ever get to $100. Frankly, at a point of you know, less than $1,000, is getting to a, a very attractive cut point for anyone with diagnosis of cancer, anyone with a rare or unknown condition. And to sequence a newborn uh, or a neo, uh, an unborn, the, the, the ability to predict things, particularly avoid amniocentesis, these are some really exciting opportunities. One of the things that I hear about this amazing movement is that we're generating just incredible pools of genetic data, and they're not doing a lot for us yet. They're filling up our disk drives, but we haven't, you know, cured cancer. They, they had this, this revolution in, in data gathering hasn't yet turned into a health revolution. Is that fair? And if so, what will turn it into a health revolution? The bottleneck is this big data, ginormity of data processing, and this is a problem across the whole digital uh, space. Here, as I mentioned, for each individual genome, whole genome, it, we're talking about uh, you know, at least 250 billion data points. And then if you have cancer, you may have at least the cancer genome or the metastasis genome, you have multiple genomes. Or you're trying to crack what's going on in a family, you're going to have multiple family members. Then you start to say there's going to be four or five million people wholly sequenced by the end of 2014. That amount of data, and we, we are the biggest at our institute. Can you put a bound on that? Like, well, how, many how many petabytes well, are we talking about? Well, we're generating terabytes a day. Uh, you know, for the individual we're sequencing. And we're not one of the largest sequence centers <laughs> in the country. But we are the largest consumer of the San Diego Supercomputer Center, which is one of the four biggest supercomputers in the United States. So this is uh, a, a big issue, being able to deal with this data, but not just that you can store it, but you can extract all the meaningful, the guts, the, the, the juice of the data. That's really tough. But I mean, you've I, helped I me. Would add to that, I would add to that the following. I would say I think most of us in high school when we learn genetics – sort of form the, based on, you know, the famous wrinkled pea experiments and other experiments mm -hmm. that we all studied, uh, form the idea or the sickle cell example that there's one gene to one phenotype. And so then we get to the finding, and actually the number of genes that humans were thought to have has declined substantially until this era, you know, 12 years ago. It's in the low, it's in the 20 to 23,000 range of human genes. Well, the variety of humans, even our faces, how they appear, and our phenotypes vastly exceeds that. So it's abundantly clear that, let alone the interior phenotypes of all the diverse diseases we can have. So it's abundantly clear that it's, there's no such thing as one gene causing one phenotype or one outcome. 
So everything uh, that Eric just said is going to be combinatorially more complex because if we have 23,000 genes for the sake of argument, the people are beginning to put these into networks. These genes are into networks. Mm -hmm. And so each of these genes, if you made a fully saturated network of 23,000 genes, it would be 23,000 squared divided by two number of ties. And add on to that the number of... Which is a, a big a number. A big number. Big. And then you add into that the fact that it turns on at different moments during <laughs> development. So you add on the temporal com complexity. We have no clue, actually. Well, well, yeah, I want to comment because the visualization that you set up with is perfect because that's what gene and pathway networks are right. all about. It's the same story, and, and that's exactly right. It isn't just the 240,000 uh, data bits. It's, it's actually understanding How all the interactions, <laughs> and it's the interactions it's that are critical. Staggeringly complex yes, problems. Absolutely, and it's not just But we are going to make progress on well, it. Well, yeah, but, and it's not just a sequence. You've got, you've got all the proteins. You've got the metabolites, the epigenomics, the side chains of the DNA, uh, the gene expression, the, you know, this RNA sequencing. So, you know, it's all this data, all of it's highly interactive and networked, and that is, of course, the complexity that's going to keep us busy over the next decade. But the point is we're already seeing some remarkable uh, milestone developments in, in changing Give health. Give us a couple. Well, you know, to have a life saved of, a, of a, the, the, the Sentinel case uh, a couple of years ago in Milwaukee. Uh, boy was about to die. No one knew why. He was so sick, had 100 surgical operations. His name <laughs> is Nicholas Volker. He last rites get sequenced. They crack the, um, the the mutation that caused it. He's cured. He's a perfectly normal seven-year-old today. And there are now many other kids and cases. In fact, at Scripps, we have a, a program, and actually um, our daughter, Sarah, runs this program called Idiom, the Idiopathic Disease of Man. And uh, we take people like the Nicholas Volker, also adults. So being able to, uh, to, un to, to decode a, a mystifying serious Potentially life-threatening disease is a big deal. But and I think, I think, in fairness, that's going to be initially a minority of people who have rare diseases that are, that are not that. polygenic. And but the, the the success rate is about forty to fifty percent when people have sequencing, particularly when family members mm -hmm. who are affected or unaffected. So it's it's better hit, than the we hit rate expected. is currently that high, forty to fifty percent, and that's across multiple disciplines: neurologic disorders and. And, and, and many others. So it's exciting. But cancer is probably the one, cancer as a genomic disease is probably where there's been the, the most progress because people now have had uh, cancer sequencing early on and it's led to the real precise definition of what's the driver of their cancer. And they may be getting a drug intervention that now match for their cancer that no one would ever have theorized would have been useful. And that's a big deal because that's really resetting and how cancer is. You're saying that the apply. way we treat some cancers now is just night and day different than a year ago, than that recent? Yeah, yeah. we need a complete redo of the molecular taxonomy okay. because now we say, you know, this is breast cancer, yeah. this is yeah. colon cancer. It could be that the same driving mutation in one cancer is, 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 is prostate tissue, yeah. is what's causing, you know, the lung cancer. Right. It, 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 we don't have a war on cancer today. <laughs> we have a war on mutations, Good. and that's where the drugs can precisely uh, interact. Um, my... Friends who study Moore's Law say that the thing that's holding us up from having even better and faster and smaller and cooler computers is basically the battery, right? So this laggard in improvement. What's the laggard in improvement in healthcare? Where are we not getting better quickly enough for, for your tastes? Uh, probably the biggest problem is the medical uh, community is so resistant to change okay. because a lot of these things are ready. They're ready, set, go. Yep. They're here and now, uh, but they're just... It, it, it takes 17 years, on average, from uh, an ideation, innovation, to becoming a form of medical practice in daily use. So this is unacceptable. We can't wait 17 years. I think that's our biggest problem is we have this ultra-conservative uh, community that this is why we need this consumer-driven health revolution. If that starts to take hold and if we can exploit the, the science and basis of that, that could be really quickly turned around. And do, Nicholas, do you share the idea that the medical community is kind of getting in its own way in some ways? I think yes, but I would add something to that. I would say that, um, uh, and we were talking a little bit about this earlier, I think that we often forget the fact that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And the way our whole system is organized right now, we spend money uh, treating diseases but not preventing them. We spend research mm -hmm. dollars understanding the treatment of diseases and not the prevention. NIH 
spends less than 5% of its budget trying to understand the prevention of disease. Now, of course, this is a natural problem. All of us humans, you know, we defer to later on, you know, anyone who studied sort of any basic psychology or behavioral economics. And, of course, once you're sick, you would pay limitlessly to avoid the illness, and every person will impoverish themselves. So, so that's why we have a kind of crazy system. And if I approach you now and ask you to spend $1,000 a year to avoid some calamity, you won't do it. But then when you have the calamity, you'll spend $100,000. So, um, and so we have uh, this problem. And I think part of what I would um, like to see is the sort of redirection of some of these resources, which can be congruent. For example, some of these new genetic ideas can be deployed in the service of prevention. They're not, we don't need to set up false dichotomies between, uh, between them. But I would love to see a world in which, with better insight into um, people's physiology, we can use those ideas to improve their behavior. Now, the problem is what I call, and I'd love to hear your take on this, is the so-called funnel problem. So, so imagine we had an array. We don't have a blackboard. Uh, imagine we had an array on the top here of like um, 20,000 genes or 500,000 SNPs or some huge amount of very precise information about each of your bodies. And based on those things, Eric and others could study it and make recommendations about what you should do to minimize your risk of some disease. Unfortunately, we don't have 500,000 different things you should do. It actually boils down to seven things you should do. And those seven things are eat right, exercise, wear your seatbelt, brush your teeth, and sleep well. It's all the damn things your mother told you were before. So I don't need to sequence the genome no, to give you this advice. No, I can no, give you this no, advice no. right now. No, so, not true. Not true. So the question is how, how do Turn we Turn off your invent, computer and listen to your mother as exactly. the advice from this man. So the question is how do we invent new kinds of filters or preventive interventions between the knowledge up here and these right. reductionistic right. behaviors down here. Yeah. And so the next challenge is not just in deciphering the genome or understanding the biology, it's understanding and inventing new things you can do with that knowledge other than just eat right, go to sleep, wear your seatbelt. How's that? Well, uh, this, I, I, I love this because uh, <laughs> this is, um, the, 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 when you have the data for each, uh, each person has their own data, talk about empowerment. That just redefines what that really means. So when you know that you have uh, your your parents and you have a a new baby, and that baby has a very high risk of developing uh, autoimmune type 1 diabetes, okay? (laughs) Now, is that actionable? Sure, sure it's actionable because it takes five years to auto-destruct the pancreas. So now, instead of having a baby who develops this horrendous chronic disease, you can now be following that, that child. In fact, that's another application of a, of a, of a nanochip in the blood because you see the autoantibodies forming. And you can precisely give immunomodulation therapy, tone down the immune system so that the pancreas is spared and the child never develops type 1 diabetes. Now, that's an example that's going to happen. This is going to be a curable... Yeah, but the key there was the description of a new thing you can do other than eating right, which oh, is the right. immunomodulation, but, no, I, I, the invention of new okay. preventive technologies. Right, but if I do, if I do your whole genome yes. and I find out, you know what, Nicholas, you have a really high risk, you have a rare variant for malignant melanoma. Yes. You know what? It's as simple as you really got to take uh, extreme sun protection. Oh, okay, but, but, but I'm yeah. Greek. I can't hear that. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but, okay, okay, but, but I, that's boy, not on action. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hope you don't <laughs> Bad have news that. doctor, right. <laughs> But, but Eric, you know, Nicholas is telling us that, that today we don't eat our vegetables. If, if we know we have high yeah. cholesterol, we don't lay off the bratwurst right now. Yeah, but, can, are, can, but you know what, Andrew? Sometimes for some people, bratwurst and, and lack of vegetables is perfectly fine because they don't have, you know, that's yes. the whole thing. This whole thing about diet, the same diet and the every, same for everybody is crazy stuff. We're going to get past that. Totally that's crazy. That's very good what he just said. Plus, the other thing which he alluded to but I would like to highlight is that sometimes a simple knowledge, like I can tell you all go eat right. It's the same advice no matter whether it's you. But it's a totally different matter if I say, I've now sequenced your genome. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. if you don't eat right. Now we're you know, talking. Now, now so we're that, talking. That fact yes. alone could yes. increase your Now, it may be, therefore, that the intervention is the same, eating right, leaving out the immunomodulation <laughs> intervention, but the, the motivation that that can provide. Now, it's an but expensive saying, motivation, $1,000 a head. Okay. But it may, but you know, be but more. But you only have a difference between that bratwurst will kill you versus that right. bratwurst will kill you. you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. There, there you go. Right. Exactly. Now we're talking. Right. That's individualization. Correct. Right. There we go. You and all your friends yeah. will die. Yeah. You eat this bratwurst. Yeah. And, uh, and one other point, just to put this in perspective about the, the $1,000 genome or whatever it is. It'll be, be much less. It's, it, you're, yeah, it may be $100, yeah. but whatever it is, you don't have to do that once. 
You sequence it once. Mm -hmm. That's good for life. So it's, uh, you know, we're talking about $10 a year, $5 a year. I mean, this is going to be one of the greatest bargains of, of healthcare going forward. Now, one thing uh, that Eric also alluded to, which I don't know if we have time to discuss today, but it is frontier science and it intersects our worlds, is the notion not only of epigenetics, but specifically of social epigenetics. So you don't only have not only have a genome, but two identical. You got to un, unpack that for yeah, us. Yeah, so, so two identical siblings could have the same genome, but the genome could be regulated, or, or the, there are a variety of ways in which your genome is regulated and comes to be expressed at different moments in different tissues at different times, conditional on different exposures. And one of the ways is by methylating at very specific locations on the genome, basically turning on certain genes that you might need. So if he and I are identical twins, but we live in different environments. Pick the suntan example. He's living in a cave, and I'm living in the sun. You know, my, the part of my genome that's responsible for upregulating my melanin production might go up, for example. And you could mark it and sort of lead to better expression of those genes. Well, it turns out that there may be, uh, it turns out there's a whole new set of ideas about how these types of marks can quasi permanently mark us. So if you're born into a world of war, for example, where mm. you're constantly, there's constant bombardment of your village when you're the first five years of your life, your stress hormones are permanently upregulated for the rest of your life. Is that right? Yes, because you're born into this type of a world. And so, so even though the, G, the DNA is the same, whether they're expressed and how it's expressed can be permanently marked. Or you're born into a world full of malnutrition, for mm -hmm. example, you will upregulate different otherwise identical mm -hmm. genes. And the part that's very interesting to me is the social exposures. There are biologists studying the biological exposures, but I'm very interested in how, for instance, exposure to poverty or exposure to social interactions. If, you are, if you're surrounded by people all the time, how, how does that modify your gene expression? So it's not, it's even more complex than oh, you. Yeah, no. so, of course. I mean, right. even it, this, even the, you, you're getting into epigenomics, and even the in utero, yes. before birth, has a marked effect. There's no such thing as identical twins. Yes. So, you know, well, it's, it's, weird. it's very complex. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't mean it won't have a change on, on how we approach healthcare and medicine. But, but the reason they intersect, though, is, is that if you could sequence the genome, so they intersect also in this notion of prevention, uh, which Eric alluded to, which is that let's say you figure out that it's, if you eat the bratwurst, now I can actually figure out that I can modify certain features of your environment in a preventive way, which then don't change your genes after all. You have a gene. Yeah but change the way in which the gene finds expression. And so you can begin to think about all kinds of frontiers, some crazy, some not so crazy ideas about how we can intervene in these systems. I have one last question for our panelists, and then we'll throw it open for whatever we all want to talk about. Um, I love the title of your book. Uh, for those of us who don't know, creative destruction is the phrase that the Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter coined to describe the central um, dynamic of capitalism, which is new stuff comes up, innovation comes up, as part of that, old stuff has to go away and stuff has to get broken and, and, and die out. Guys, what, what has to get, what has to die out? What's going to be the destruction part here? The biggest thing as in the way is the medical priesthood. Okay? The doctor knows I, I, best. Sorry, sir, I look at your business card. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm a practicing like, I think doctor. I think you are the pope of that priesthood. <laughs> no, no. I don't want to be the pope. I want to be, uh, look, what we need is, this is a reset of the partnership. Okay, because when, when each person has their data on their, their hub, their data yes. hub about yep. their health. You'll have a DNA app. You've got, have it's got the sequence that goes with the drugs that you are prescribed. And you say, no, doctor, I can't take that drug. I'm going to have a dreaded side effect. I, you don't prescribe that one. I'll take this one. But the point is, all this data is on your phone. You're going to be partnering with the physician. No longer is it, you know, this is really, uh, Andrew, like the Gutenberg printing press all over again okay. in medicine. Because instead of that era where, you know, nobody could read except the high priest, right. now people will be reading and they'll be learning about their genome and their, their, their physiologic metrics from their sensors for the first time because they never had these tools, never had this information before. And that's, that's why this Schumpeter thing is, is the real deal here. When I hear you talk, it, rem it reminds me a lot of a, another lesson from history, which is... Uh, William Tyndall, who tried to translate the Bible into the actual language that people spoke and was killed for his troubles. Right, so, right. <laughs> right. You know, I worry about that. <laughs> We're right behind you. <laughs> Nick, Nicholas, what, what needs to change? What needs to get broken? I, do, I don't have much to add to that. I mean, the, um, I, think, um, I think we'll just we'll move on. I don't have much to add to okay. that. Okay, fantastic. Please. Um, you guys have done such a great job. I almost hate to you know, ask a question that, because you're asking such great ones. I'm David Jones. I run a venture capital firm that focuses on this general stuff, and I'm a director of Humana, a big um, insurance company. So I, I absolutely adore um, and believe in the potential here. But 
Um, my question is, you've defined a range of sort of big data um, potential from um, analysis of social networks that we can do right now to um, the potential of deep genomic understanding where we've got um, hurdles in the way in terms of more processing power and everything. What are we going to see first that really matters in all this, and when are we going to see it? What's the first use of this potential? Is it in the next 12 months? Is it 10 years off? Well, there's a lot of things you can measure today that are health-related. Uh, so, for example, I, I, most of my patients have high blood pressure, and I couldn't get their blood pressure data. Yep. They don't want to take it. Yep. Now they get an app for their phone, iHealth or Withings, and it's fun because they just press start, and they get hundreds of blood pressures, and it's all graph for them, and that's and not even... That's accurate enough for your purposes. Oh, no, they're, they're even more accurate than the classic Omron blood pressure. That's an example, but, you know, there's a lot more than that. Uh, you can monitor your brain waves. You can have your home electroencephalogram. So with, let me refine. What, what's the first outcome that we're going to yeah. see? What's going to affect obesity or uh, heart disease or something? What's the, for, what's the near-term health improvement we're going to yeah. see as a result right. of this? Right. So I think the, the key is whatever you're uh, targeting. So blood pressure is a very prevalent problem. Sleep apnea and sleep disorders are really big mm. problems. So, you know, if you are affected with one of those, you're going to have data for the first time, and you're going to be, you're going to be part of the discussion with your physician. Good. You know, whereas before, you had nothing. All the information asymmetry mm -hmm. within the domain was in the doctor's side. But today, if you're prescribed a drug, you ought to know which of the drugs that there are uh, unequivocal genomic data about predicting whether the drug will work and what the side effects that you might incur, which... Like a lot of times, physicians won't discuss that with you. That is something ready for here and now. I can tell you on the network side two things. On the physician networks, I think it's being done and will immediately be applied. Everything from using insights about networks on how to form natural or accountable care organizations. Hmm. So instead of top-down imposition of you guys are going to work with each other, we're going to say, okay, we'll draw the boundaries around this group of doctors. So they already are working with each other. We're going to understand the problem of churn uh, better and leakage within hospital systems. So when patients leak out, what, diffusion. I'm, what, uh, I'm sorry. What's so that has to do with how hospital systems are organized in a way to keep patients within their system rather than leaving. Great. Has a lot to do with the way the doctors interact. We're going to understand the diffusion of innovation and product adoption, whether it's safety practices, switching doctors to generics. How do you get them to do this? Uh, not ordering tests needlessly, improving quality. Are, are you optimistic that we actually? Oh, are, yeah, we can are, do all of that but, now. That's but, not, but we're going to get better at, at telling physicians to. At, to change their behaviors? Yeah, what we're going to do, what we're going to do better is we're going to deploy existing resources better. This is a little Pollyanna, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is Pollyanna. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I this, think so. Uh, this, <laughs> no, we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to get a better return on investment for whatever okay. it is that we're doing right now. Got Instead it. of kind of flopping around, we're going to strategically intervene in these systems in ways that are better. And, and, there, and there's data to support what I'm saying. I mean, there are actual experiments have been done, proofs of concept and so forth. So on the physician side, I think we're going to be able to use networks to improve physician practice yep. some. I am not saying we're going to have a transform of modern doctors to be, you know, the Lawrence Welk of years gone by. Uh, second, on the patient side, I think the tools are already being used both online and offline. Online, they're being used in ways, in vast, I think the most dramatic way is the patients like me kind of way, in which people seek each other out and reinforce each other. When the, doctor, when the patient comes to the doctor, he or she already knows a ton about their condition. And when they experience a symptom, they can't reach the doctor. They go online and they say, I have breast cancer, stage three. I'm being treated with these things. I have a node on my ankle. I'm really worried it's metastatic. And they get 100 patients that say, no, don't worry about that. <laughs> uh, and so they, they're relaxed, you know. Or they say, I'm getting these hives. And uh, I wonder, is it hay fever? Is it a side effect of my medication? And 100,000 people online, not a single one has reported this before. They relax. They take action differently. So I think we're already seeing it online. We're seeing firms using ways to introduce people online to put something at stake. You're diabetic. How do you get you guys to reinforce each other in their self-management? In the face-to-face -face world, we're seeing deployments where you can bring people together in a way that takes advantage of this property that networks magnify whatever they are seated with, but now try to get them to do good things like lose weight or stop using drugs. And if you think about it, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and Weight Watchers are artificial social networks, right? We've been doing that for generations. We've been using that technology, but now we can do it even better. All those things are ready and are being done. Well, I'm one of the high priestesses. I'm a physician, and um, as I listen to you speak of this, I have to tell you that I don't think doctors are the biggest part of the problem. My life is so restricted by insurance companies, drug companies, and lawyers that that 17 years is really affected by all of them. Mm -hmm. We can't do things 
that are too experimental without having some data, without being really beaten up by the insurance companies, um, harassed by the um, drug companies. When I saw that Genuvia um, map, I went, oh, my God, those poor physicians are going to get killed because they now know <laughs> they're, not, they're not writing their drugs. And then the lawyers come back if we do something that's outside the, the box and doesn't, and doesn't um, work. What I love about what I hear that you're saying is I want patients to be in control of their health care. Right. And I will tell yeah. you that I think if you give the doctors and the patients the chance to work on this without everybody else, that 17 years could be two months because every physician I know is totally frustrated by our inability to try to get the right things for our patients quickly with a minimum of hassle. The hassle factors physicians today is just beyond belief. That's not really a question but a statement. And I encourage all of this and I can't wait for it to come about. But, but can, I, can I ask you a quick question? Sure. The physicians that, that you know and deal with. <laughs> Do they want more informed patients to walk into their offices? Do they want to have dialogue with patients as opposed to give them marching orders? Well, let me let me let I me now wait. Just let me just speak to that. What we would like to be able to do is spend our time with our patients, not writing letters of prior authorization, not having to do different things with drug companies, and and particularly though it's the insurance companies and recognize that what we're being reimbursed is getting cut lower and lower and lower. So time matters for a physician right now because we're not on salary. You know, we have to pay our, our, um, our staff. You know, when the federal government says, we're going to cut you by 29%, I'm going, right. hey, you're cutting me by about 80%. Because yeah. my staff is not taking 29% pay cut. My landlord's not taking 29% <laughs> pay cut. The drug companies or the medical supply companies aren't taking 29% percent pay cut. Multiply it back to physicians and it's about an 80 percent pay cut. Guys, yeah, commentary? I, I very much agree with your comments. Uh, so the first point is that when, when the uh, patient consumers have their data, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. They never had it before, mm -hmm. as we discussed, and that is the central tenet here. We didn't have the tools to get them the data. But there was a very interesting report that just came out last week that you can download from PricewaterhouseCoopers where they, they surveyed thousands of physicians and consumers about uh, all these mobile ads and apps. So, for example, yep. you can get an, an ad to do your eye refraction. You don't need an optometrist. You get the text to your prescription glasses. Yeah. You can do uh, an ad to have uh, look at your child's eardrum, whether you need to have antibiotics for otitis media. Yep. You can, yeah, it came out of MIT. Uh, you, and no, yes, yes, you don't need the antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you got you have all these things, and they're very threatening. You, you, if you're a dermatologist, you just take yeah. a picture of this, the lesion and you get a, a text. Yeah. Don't have to get a biopsy. They're threatening to physicians. And in that survey, the consumers overwhelmingly want all this stuff. They want their information. The physicians, no. They don't want the, the, the consumers to get that information because they find it very threatening. Part of what you mentioned is the reimbursement. And the other thing is, so this was a historic week with this whole ACA yeah. thing. It has nothing to do with the, 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 the daily practice of medicine that you're getting into. And the fact that there's this, this sea change, seismic changes that are occurring, which are very threatening to physicians. Hmm. It's not just about their lack of knowledge and information about all genomics they don't really understand. They have, what was the curriculum in medical school for wireless medicine, right? <laughs> it doesn't exist in one medical school at 140 in the United States. So things are changing so quickly they can't keep up, and it has nothing to do with Affordable Care Act. Well, Ma'am, I don't mean to cut you off, but we have, have a, a, a line behind. Thank you, though. To get the really big benefits for population health and um, public health, can we allow people to opt out of the data flows for personal or privacy or religious reasons? Uh, that's the first point. And the second point is, I think you met Marcus Welby, not uh, Lawrence Welk. Oh, sorry, yes. <laughs> I was wondering about that. <laughs> I don't want... Shows you how little TV I watch <laughs> or what age I am. <laughs> Actually, the avuncular figure I always think about is Atticus Finch, you know? And before I became a father, I thought I would be like Atticus Finch, and then I became a dad. There are probably public health benefits to soothing music, wouldn't you imagine? <laughs> Lawrence Welk, Jesus Christ. I said, where does this Lawrence Welk thing? Yeah. Guys, the, the, but the privacy concerns yeah, with, yeah, with, yeah. with, with, our, with what our, our, our gentleman brings up, these aren't trivial, are they? Well, one comment I'd make quickly is that it's always going to be the person's choice to have whether they want to have their genome sequenced or they want to have these sensors on or use them. And so that is not going to be any time compelling. The other thing is, of course, there are laws that are coming to play for those people who have genetic data that isn't 
discriminated, you misuse the GINA laws, and there need to be built on that for not just uh, insurers and employers, but also uh, uh, disability and life insurance, which doesn't exist today. Are we doing a decent job crafting those laws and thinking about them? Well, to give you an example, the GINA legislation, which is the only thing that protects citizens today about misuse of genetic data, it took like over 10 years to get that finally through, and it, it still doesn't cover uh, you know, life insurance and, and uh, disability insurance. So it's incomplete. We need that to accelerate because uh, as we, a theme that's emerging from the discussion is so much more data is going to be out there and we need yep. this privacy, security. It'll never be perfect. There's always a chance of hacking and breach of data, but it, but it shouldn't be something that's misused. Well, I'm really asking, does it work like vaccinations? Is there a tipping point? There are a certain amount of uh. No, I'm sure that you can have a, a kind of moral hazard there. I'm sure that there are people who can, you know, you can just stay apart from it and benefit from the discoveries and the inventions and so forth. But uh, I think the regulatory framework and the legal frameworks are still incomplete. Do, you know, any corporation that has data like this can analyze its data for its own purposes, right? So Visa, for example, or your supermarket. How does your supermarket, did anyone have this experience where like 10 years ago, all of a sudden, whenever you wanted to buy strawberry jam for breakfast, all of a sudden there was peanut butter right next to it? Like, what the hell is the peanut butter doing next to strawberry jam where I'm here to buy bread and, and stuff? And then it suddenly dawns on you that there are people that are making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And they've reasoned that they saw the co-purchasing behavior. When someone bought strawberry jam, they often bought peanut butter. And so they restocked their shelves now to put items together near each other to facilitate these types of purchases. So corporations do this, as many of you probably know, all the time. Visa can ascertain who's at risk for whatever. The question is, when is the data out in the open? So who outside of the entity, and how can you link data across entities, and what's the regulatory framework that gives scientists access, patients access, uh, uh, the government access to these types of data? I think one of the frameworks that people are proposing is, is that you benefit from the collective if you contribute your data. So there are all kinds of some of these online tools we discussed. You can sign up and, and be passive and just watch the conversation, or you can contribute. Some co uh, communities require contribution for you to benefit. Okay. Or there are frameworks in which you can even pay people for their data. And so we know from a long history in economics that if you give title to something, you capitalize it, and it becomes more valuable. So you can reduce squatting by giving people title to their land. And I think the same thing might happen eventually with your data. Someone will pay you for it, and, uh, and there will be rules about it. Okay. Hi, I'm Ken Davis, the president and CEO of Mount Sinai Medical Center. And I also uh, still have a little bit of time to uh, write and publish in genomics of schizophrenia and autism. So, and Eric, you can appreciate how difficult that is. Oh, yeah. I've done what oh, you've sure. done. But what I'd like to talk to you about is the high priesthood, again, of medicine and your contention that it is the obstacle. Um, in the world that I live in, where the uh, richest, and zip, uh, richest and poorest zip codes of America right. are in yeah. juxtaposition, um, I see that the greatest obstacle to the advances in delivery and that may be made possible by the advances in, in digital technology is poverty. Right. Um, and I want, wonder if you would comment on that and what you see as the impact of the frayed social service network that we have yeah. and um, <laughs> the poor communities that will not be able to be advantaged by all these you know, advances in medicine. That point is invaluable. We have this digital divide today. And it isn't just the U.S. versus the rest of the yep. world. There's a lot within the U.S. and right in Manhattan. And so this is a problem because the, the way this new scaffold of medicine mm -hmm. is going to work fine for the, the, the advantaged that can become the partners to their physicians who can have their data. But what about the ones who don't even have a cell phone, no less a smartphone? And, and so we got a problem there. I don't, I don't know the solution to it, but that is deep, profound, and, you know, that's something that perhaps there's there's going to be something that comes out of this, uh, you know, Affordable Care Act is going to deal with it. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I mean, that goes back to uh, something we were talking about prevention versus cure earlier. Uh, poverty is, kills more people, is the greatest threat to public health and individual health, period. Uh, poverty is much more deadly than smoking, than uh, any of the other exposures. So we lose 50,000 lives a year to, heart, to, uh, to car accidents and uh, 25,000 lives a year to gun uh, injuries. Uh, you can go on down the list, but poverty is like just blows them away in terms of uh, uh, the number of people that are killed. So, um, so if we were serious about improving the public health, we would then also have interventions in mind or ways in mind that we could you know, bring people out of poverty. 
So I am totally with you on that, and that would require a, a radical reshaping or rethinking about how we approach public health, which is a topic we can discuss later, actually. I'd be right with you at the barricades on that. There What's are, interesting is that you two guys, who are both optimists, as I listen to yeah. you, are not saying that, don't worry, Moore's Law in this progress is going to take care of the digital divide. I don't see it at all. Unfortunately, there are some pilot studies to, see, to give smartphones to do remote monitoring in, 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 in uh, impoverished uh, groups of people, and we'll see whether that's a cost-effective uh, story. But that's, that is probably the see deepest that. problem to override, and it is, as Nicholas yeah. is stressing, a critical one. Yeah, I think, I think the thing you have to understand about social systems is that there will always be hierarchy. People, there will be a natural lottery and a social lottery. Mm -hmm. People will be born with different talents. Some people will be born blind. Some people will be born with different kinds of limitations. A just society creates a kind of safety net that brings these individuals up and gives them a bare minimum of, of, um, of care. And so if you have two basic observations about the world, one, it's, one of which is that there's never enough of the good stuff in life, right? There are budget constraints. The world is limited. We can't have infinite resources. And second, that there's any asymmetry in people's talents or status then those resources will be differentially distributed. So the poor people today live a life that was like the aristocrats of the Sumerians 10,000 years ago and was uh, far surpasses the middle class of you know, 50 years ago, and yet they're still at the bottom uh, of our new uh, hierarchy. So now that's just, I think, unavoidable. So the question is, what do we do to kind of provide a society that actually rectifies that and certainly mitigates the kind of adver adverse consequences for health and so forth? That, you know, that, that, that confers. Sir? Good morning. Uh, my name is Chris Gates, and I'm from New York. And, and I'm not a doctor, and I don't play one on TV. <laughs> <laughs> or a musician, either, on TV. <laughs> no, no, and I just came back from a two-week, uh, Pamela and I just came back from a two-week leadership course at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth College. And so we were in a group of wonderful people who were deeply committed to health care, and some of them, you know, to be newly minted shortly as they come out of medical school. In shifting this 17-year conversation and, you know, having things shorten up that time period, if there was one thing you could say to a group of newly minted health care people hmm. that would contribute to shortening that time period, what would you like to say to them? Well, I've had a chance to do that at some recent commencement addresses. <laughs> And inspiring them that uh, this is such a, uh, this is the most momentous moment in medicine. And so that, you know, keeping uh, an open attitude towards this resetting of the relationship with patients. Mm -hmm. Because no longer is it, the, this, uh, this information asymmetry will not be tolerated. Not, not by the, 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 the people or, or who are, uh, you know, not favored by the digital divide. But the ones who are at the ASP Institute here, they're going to be, and a whole new reset, and, and this is exciting. Don't, don't shy away from don't, it. Don't fight it. Don't, don't shy away exactly. from it. You know, exactly. Advice to a young doctor. No, I'll go. I'll second my colleague's <laughs> advice. Ditto. Great. We Thank have time, you. I think, for one final question. Ma'am, we hope you have a bang-up final question for us. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> I'm Nancy Zurich, and I have no relationship whatever to medicine except that I am a consumer. Um, one of you said something about injecting cells into the blood that will, will then be traced and helpful in heart attack and strokes and, and other things. Actually, it was worse than that um, even. He was going to inject a micro-machine into your, blood. your bloodstream. And yeah. we hear right. things like this that sound like they're pie in the sky. Um, I, I have two questions. How far off is something like that, number one? And number two like with everyone else or everything else in terms of the digital divide, are, are the underserved populations mm. going to get to have access to it? So when's it coming and will it be cheap enough? Well, it's coming fast. Uh, the the nanochips, uh, multiple institutions, we've done this with the group at Caltech and uh, Stanford just published about this. The whole idea of being able to pick up the cells that are that are sloughing off from an artery lining, it's it's already ready for a one-off blood test in emergency rooms to see someone wow. has an impending heart attack sometime later this year, early next year. So that's a one-off blood test. The whole idea is to have under continuous surveillance for someone who's already had a heart attack or stroke because we don't ever want that to happen again. So I think that this is something that is, you're going to see it happen much faster than anyone realized because we have the genetic signature. We can track it, which we never had before. 
there was a second part of your question, though, which what was about the poor affordability. Yeah. And so here. you know what? It could turn out that by giving people a cell phone and a, a nano chip in their blood, that was a whole lot cheaper than <laughs> them being hotspotters going to emergency rooms and hospitalizations. It could turn out. We don't know yet that yet, but that's a potential. But, and if that's the case, then the insurance companies will jump on that. Exactly. Right? You know, it okay. could be a, a more remarkably economic way to practice medicine. That's a that's a good note to end on, gentlemen. Thank you. This has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.